Hi, I'm Dr. Lexi Frydenberg, paediatrician and co-host of the Kids Health Info podcast. This isn't one of our usual podcast episodes. Instead, we're bringing you a recording of a Facebook Live webinar from the Royal Children's Hospital, all about the physical effects of COVID-19 in children. It was streamed live on Friday, 10th of September, 2021. So many people in the community have told us how helpful and reassuring this event was. So we're bringing it to you here. If you're a regular listener to the Kids Health Info podcast, you'll recognise the host of the webinar, Dr Anthea Rhodes, and one of the panellists, Dr Margie Danchen. They're joined by some expert colleagues here at the hospital in this one-hour discussion. So get comfortable with the cuppa and over to you, Ant. I'm Dr Anthea Rhodes, paediatrician, joining you live from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Today, I'm going to be joined by a panel of experts from here at the Royal Children's Hospital and our campus partners, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of Melbourne, to talk about the physical health effects of COVID-19 on our children. There are lots of ways that our kids are being affected by COVID-19, and I really want to acknowledge also that we're aware of all the mental health effects that many of us have experienced, especially our children, and are continuing to experience as well. We have also done a Facebook Live episode on this recently, which you might like to view if you haven't already. But today's session really is going to focus on largely the physical effects, which are sometimes called the direct effects from COVID-19 virus itself. The types of things that we'll be talking about include the Delta variant and how it affects our children, the concept of long COVID and what that means for kids, and of course vaccination, which is the big topic for all of us at the moment, for our children and all of us that surround our children too. We've had a huge amount of interest in today's session. We've literally had hundreds of comments from people already on social media. So thank you to people who have put your questions and thoughts out there. We will do our best to answer lots of those in our conversation today. So before we get started, the next thing to do is introduce our panel of experts that we have here today. We have firstly Dr Sarah McNabb who is a paediatrician and director of our general medicine department here at the Royal Children's Hospital. We have Dr Shidan Tosif, who is also a paediatrician and heads up our respiratory infection clinic, which is the clinic that we use here at the hospital to screen and diagnose those children who have uh, exposure to or experienced COVID-19. So Shidan will be telling us a bit about those experiences. We also have Professor Andrew Steer, who again is a paediatrician, but also an infectious disease specialist who has lots of research and clinical experience in this space. And finally, Associate Professor Margie Danchen, who is again a paediatrician, but also an expert in vaccines and particularly understanding how we help to build confidence in having vaccines in our community. The past 18 months has been really a very intense journey for people. We've had a lot of uncertainty, which is an incredibly hard thing to sit with and understand and process, particularly as a parent, when we feel like we're making decisions not just about ourselves, but about our children, and particularly about our children's health. And there are a few things that are more concerning or important to a parent than that. At the start of the pandemic, we were worried, of course, about kids, and it seemed like they weren't affected very much, and everyone felt a bit relieved. Our children, of course, have had a big change in their lives, 
many of them being home from school or kindergarten for a long time. But a lot of that was about um, them protecting other people in the community, not necessarily with us being worried that they might get sick themselves. But more recently, particularly over the last few weeks, and in fact the last few months around the world, we've seen the Delta variant, which is a way that COVID-19 has changed. And in our news has come a lot of information, some of it quite frightening, about what that means for our kids. So the first thing we're going to talk about today is what the difference is when it comes to Delta compared to how COVID was perhaps last year, and whether it's actually making our children sick. So I'm going to ask Andrew to address that question first. Thanks, Anthea, and um, hello to all the parents and kids out there who have tuned in. Um, it's a real privilege to be able to speak with you today. So the answer to your question, Anthea, is Delta making our kids more sick is um, uh, simple and then maybe a bit more complex. The simpler answer is no, it's not. So the Delta variant does not appear to cause any more severe disease among children um, that, and adolescents than the previous um, variants. And I think it's really important to say that um, COVID-19 in kids is a very different disease to COVID-19 in adults and the elderly. Admission to hospital is uncommon. Uh, admission to intensive care units is rare and deaths are very rare. And that has not changed with the Delta variant. Okay, sorry, that's really helpful to hear and know, Andrew. In addition to that, though, we have heard a lot of news from around the world that feels worrying and doesn't necessarily um, sound like that story. So particularly out of the United States, I know many parents have seen news stories that say there are lots of kids who are very sick, many of them are in ICU. How does this fit with what you're telling us now about the fact that that's not the way it affects children? So the, it's a really good question, Anthea. And the difference between... so so the. The difference between Delta and the previous variants is, that it is just more transmissible. So um, what that means is that the virus is passed more easily um, between people. And that's across the board. It's not just in kids, it's in, in adults and kids. And then the second part of this that we're hearing from overseas is that um, in many countries around the world now, the number of adults who are vaccinated is getting up higher, which is terrific. And that means that the proportion of kids in relation to um, proportion of adults is increasing who actually get the virus. So with those two things put together, there's, there are increasing number of children um, who are getting infected. But I go back to my previous comment, is that um, when children do get the infection with um, COVID, the, the nature of the infection is that it is overwhelmingly mild in all kids. So it's either no symptoms or very mild symptoms. And the symptoms that get kids get are sort of similar to the common cold. So runny nose, a cough, maybe some fatigue or a headache, um, and, but, but overwhelmingly mild. And the number of kids that need to be admitted to hospital um, as a proportion of all kids is still really low. And certainly the number of kids who go to intensive care um, and who may succumb to the illness is also really low. Okay, so... I'm going to come to Sarah in a minute to tell us a bit more about what we've seen here at the hospital about that. Um, but what I'm hearing then from you, Andrew, is that while the virus is spreading more 
among children and between children, and particularly where children are those that are not vaccinated compared to perhaps adult populations where they are vaccinated, the chances of catching this virus are going up. But the chances of an individual child getting more unwell with this is no different to what we would have seen last year. So, Sarah, can you tell us a bit about what the experience has been here? Because I think it's really important for people watching to understand what is our local experience in Australia. It is one thing to look at populations overseas, as Andrew has just said. There are lots of different factors. The actual children might be different in some way. What the level of um, vaccination is in the community is different. But what we really want to know is what's happening here. Yeah, thank you, Anthea, and, and thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Um, very similar story to what um, Andrew has just explained to us. So we've had um, thousands of children in Victoria who have been affected by COVID and around about a thousand of those children have been affected by Delta. We've had very few children need to come into hospital because they're sick with Delta um, or, or any strain of COVID. Uh, and, and very, very few um, seriously ill children and actually no, no child at the Royal Children's Hospital who's been seriously ill with Delta. Okay. And I think it might surprise some people perhaps watching to hear that we've had thousands of children actually positive for COVID-19 here in Victoria. And in addition to that, I know there are um, additional hundreds, if not thousands, in New South Wales as well with um, the growth in the spread that's happened there over recent months. So I'd like to perhaps ask Shadan if you could comment perhaps given that you um, work, you know, leading the clinic here, what the experiences have been of those children who are diagnosed. So we've heard from Sarah about very few needing to be in hospital, have, having treatment that might look very similar to treatment for other respiratory infections that we deal with all the time in the hospital. What's happening to all those other kids who are not in hospital and are out at home? What's happening with them? Thanks, Anthea, and it's lovely to be here. Um, so, yes, as you've highlighted, we have a clinic... <clears throat> excuse me, at the Royal Children's Hospital. And we've actually followed 200 children who have experienced COVID over the last 18 months. And the majority of these children have been managed at home. They have had very mild symptoms. In fact, many parents, when we ring them to tell them that they have COVID, they were very surprised because uh, they were so well or asymptomatic. Um, as Sarah highlighted, there were a few that were, I could say, mild to moderately unwell, and we kept a closer eye on them. Um, but typically the, the illness lasted about five to six days and really was indistinguishable from other viral infections which are common in children. Okay. And I know one of the other things that has come up is how we... I mentioned at the start of today that we're talking about physical health, but obviously we can't ever really separate physical health from our emotional and mental health. How is it for families who have actually had a diagnosis of COVID-19 for their child? How have they responded to that from an emotional point of view? Yeah, this is a really important point. And I think um, our awareness and uh, acceptance of this has changed throughout the pandemic. But still, it is very confronting for families when they have a child who is diagnosed with COVID. And that's understandable because they're naturally thinking about so many different things. They're thinking about the health of their child and the well-being of their child. Uh, and wanting them to get better quickly. <clears throat> They're also thinking about perhaps how other people might perceive that their child is infected. You know, if you're in a school or a classroom and your child is, in, is infected, naturally 
you know, you worry about how that child might be perceived. And we have seen, unfortunately, that there are instances where children have been stigmatized. And uh, I think we really need to think about this as a community, about realizing that it's not the fault of the child and um, to really support these children and families in every way we can. I think that's a really important point, Shadan, and I'd like to ask Margie to add to it because I know that you've looked at how you know children have coped from a wellbeing point of view through your school study on this topic as well. Yeah, thanks, Anthea, and good morning, everyone. Yeah, we've been working um, with Shadan uh, and following up some families through the respiratory infection clinic, particularly looking at the impact of the pandemic on them in terms of their mental health and well-being and learning, but also particularly, as you say, on the, the impact of a positive diagnosis in a child. And that has had a huge impact for some families particularly if that child has also been potentially responsible for a school closure. Parents have been quite reluctant to want to um, share that news with other parents. And those children are also um, apprehensive about going back to school. And when they have gone back to school, some of them have experienced some unkind comments. So I think it's something that we really need to talk about and support families and kids. And, you know, there should not be any stigma. It's no one's fault that you get COVID. Yeah. And so going forward, I think what I understand, and I think this is probably something parents are maybe just starting to get their head around, we're expecting as we see numbers going up here, certainly in Victoria every day, and they have been high numbers in New South Wales for quite some time now, that more and more children are actually going to get COVID. And when we've spent a lot of time over recent months, if not the best part of a year, really focusing on how we stop our kids getting COVID, it's very hard for families and parents to get their head around a shift towards the idea that they might, their kids might get COVID and that that is actually going to be okay. And I think that that is both from a physical point of view and their health like we're talking about today and also from that idea of um, how it's going to affect a family emotionally and the stigma and things that come with that. So, Sarah, I'd really like to ask you how you think we can best support parents to make that shift and understand the idea that maybe COVID is going to be part of what we see as a common thing for our kids over the coming months. Yes, um, I, I think you've, you've framed it really well. I think there will need to be a shift um, because at the moment we don't have a vaccine for children who are under 12. So um, it is likely that our kids will get exposed to COVID and, and many may actually contract COVID. So I think um, sessions like this where we can talk about the realities of what we're seeing, um, people who are, are, have seen kids with COVID and see it very, very frequently, um, to hopefully reassure families that in children, COVID is behaving similarly to many of the respiratory viruses that we see, but we never talk about. Okay. And along those lines comes some questions that we've had a number of through the Facebook page. And this is a question I'm going to um, put to you, Margie, where families are saying, well, I'm so worried about the idea of my child catching COVID. I can hear what you're saying, that perhaps they won't get very sick, but I still don't feel comfortable taking any risk and I really don't want my child to go back to school um, until they can be vaccinated. Yeah, and I think this is something that we're also concerned about and hearing from parents because, unfortunately, a vaccine for children under the age of 12 is still a little way off. We're only expecting the clinical trial data initially in children sort of aged 5 to 11, maybe next month. Um, 
And so we may see recommendations, for example, in the US for the vaccines to be used there. But here in Australia, possibly only, you know, March, April next year or early next year will we see a vaccine recommended for children under 12 and only if it's safe and it's shown to work well. So we don't want parents of primary school age children thinking that they need to keep them at home and wait, obviously, until they're vaccinated. Because as, you know, Sarah and Andrew and Shadan have explained, the illness is overwhelmingly mild in children. It is safe for them to go back to school. And there's a lot of work going into developing a really safe plan for kids to go back to school, to make sure there's lots of strategies in place at the school to protect them from transmitting the virus um, between each other and, and to teachers. And, of course, the best thing that parents can do to protect their primary school-age children is to get vaccinated themselves and the grandparents get vaccinated and the eligible teenagers get vaccinated. So that's the best way we can protect primary school-age kids now. OK. And we'll come a bit more to vaccination um, a little bit later and ask some of the more detailed questions because we've had a huge number of questions from people about vaccination and I'm going to put those questions to Margie shortly. But one of the things that has come through as well from many of you who are watching and um, popping messages on our Facebook is what about when a child has some sort of underlying health condition. So many of the patients and families that we work with obviously fit into this situation where they might have some sort of health condition um, or additional needs that makes them feel like the way COVID is going to affect them is different from the way it might affect another child who doesn't have those same challenges. Lots of parents have asked really specific questions about this, including things like children who might have been born prematurely, children who have some sort of chronic lung condition, perhaps children who have difficulty with their immune system that might be because of a health condition that they have or it might be because of treatment that they're receiving for something else that means their immune system is not going to work in the way that a typical uh, more healthy child's immune system might be working. So obviously some of those are really very specific and would importantly require a conversation with your own healthcare provider, your GP or your paediatrician about what the needs of your individual child are. But it would be good to hear now from the panel about what the experiences have been for those particular conditions and especially in relation to asthma because that is one of the most common questions that we've had. So we'll come to asthma specifically in a minute, but perhaps first if we go to Shadan, who could tell us about what have the experiences been through the COVID clinic um, and then to Sarah as well through the hospital of children with underlying health conditions. Yeah, thanks. This is a really important question and one that parents are thinking about, we're thinking about as paediatricians because these are the children that we see commonly. And so far to date at the Royal Children's Hospital and the children that we've seen, there were quite a number of them who did have comorbidities like the ones you've described. Um, we found that they were perhaps slightly more likely to have symptomatic infection. Overwhelmingly still, the infection was mild in those children. We know from data overseas that Big studies have happened in the UK in particular for children who have had comorbidities and still, whilst they might be at slightly higher risk of having moderate infection, the over, overall they are still at low risk of having severe disease, thankfully. 
And so for parents listening, that might be reassuring to a, a certain extent, but they might also be thinking, well, that still sounds so worrying for me. I'm, I'm still feeling like I can't relax about my child and that perhaps I need to make different decisions when it comes to my child about school or childcare and really specifically asking if I have a child with an underlying health condition who is too young to be vaccinated, do I need to keep my child home? So Shadan, what would you say to that? I think it's helpful to frame this virus in the same way that you would with other respiratory viruses for your child. And uh, we know that respiratory viruses in general can impact children who have comorbidities and they are unfortunately at slightly higher risk of having an infection from those respiratory viruses that may land them needing a review with their doctor or maybe even coming to hospital for a review. And so I think for parents having that framework that they use and are comfortable with with respiratory infections I would use that same framework to apply it to COVID because we are not seeing any difference between COVID and other respiratory infections. And I think, Anthony, as you highlighted, it's having a chat to your pediatrician or your GP to kind of navigate these really important questions uh, is also important. So it sounds like, Shadan, what you're saying is that if you wouldn't necessarily keep your child home from school or childcare or kindergarten for some other type of infection, perhaps they had a mild cold, then that would similarly be the way you think about COVID for your child um, or a risk of them catching an infection. Think about it in the same way when you're approaching your child and decisions about their risk of COVID. Exactly. Okay, so a specific question now, Sarah, I'm going to ask you this one. This comes from Michelle, and she has said, my seven-year-old has viral-induced asthma. Can you please give some information and statistics about how it has been affecting children like my son? Yeah, this is a a question close to my heart. My eldest has had quite severe asthma over the years. Um, Similarly to what um, Shidan was just explaining to us, there are conditions that uh, make some children a little bit more vulnerable to respiratory viruses in general. So some people have asthma, or I'm going to throw croup into the mix as well, um, that can be triggered by a virus. And COVID can probably trigger asthma or croup in the same way as other respiratory viruses can trigger asthma and croup. But we're not seeing evidence that it triggers it to a more severe extent than the other viruses that might trigger your child's illness. So in a similar way, I would do exactly the sorts of things that Shadan recommended. So um, if you were sending your child to school or to childcare anyway, um, with any knowing that they're exposed to other viruses in those places, then I'd still send them. You are allowed to safety net your children a little bit more than that, though. You're allowed to ask people who visit your home whether they're vaccinated. You're allowed to ask people to wash their hands when they come into your house, when we're allowed to have people in our house. Um, You're allowed to do those sorts of things um, if you feel your child's at a a greater risk. but we don't need to surround them with the fear that um, that we have had for the more vulnerable population, so particularly the elderly population. Okay, I think that's really helpful and important for parents to hear. Along those lines, I've got a question here um, that I'll put to you, Andrew, that says, well, I'm hearing that there are hospitals in the US filling up with kids with COVID, especially kids with things like asthma and lung conditions. Is this being wrongly reported? Thanks, Anthea. Um, So in some of the US states, particularly the southern states, um, there have been 
um, large numbers of Delta infections across the board. And in those states, um, the epidemiology is a little different. There's a lower uptake of, um, of vaccinations. Uh, there are different approaches than we might take here around what we call the non-pharmaceutical um, approaches in terms of, you know, masking, social distancing. So I think it is pretty, it's a bit difficult to make that comparison. Um, <clears throat> on the flip side, maybe the situation in the UK may also be helpful. Um, and I do have some information hot off the press this morning, which I'd be delighted to share. Great. Um, so over the past um, uh, month in the UK, and this is during a period of time when Delta has been circulating in the UK, um, in children under the age of 18, there's been about 170,000 infections. Um, so obviously very different to what we're experiencing here. And of those 160,000, um, less than 0.3% of those children were admitted to hospital. Um, and there were three deaths amongst those 170,000 um, infections in children. So that's a, obviously a very different story to what we're hearing from the US. And I just think it's really important that we you know, take a broad view of what's happening in the world and just be careful in not focusing on particular um, stories from particular counties in, in the US, for example. I think that's really helpful and important, Siri, to put it into that context. And what might be, um, you know, to add to that helpful for families is some context of deaths for, for children more broadly. So obviously every death in a child is a tragedy yeah. and we, um, our, our entire remit as healthcare providers and particularly paediatricians is to prevent any death in a child. Um, but of course that's also not possible across the board. We do know children do get sick from lots of different things and particularly thinking about infectious diseases and that being your area of specialty, this is one of the biggest things that affects children. Um, how does the risk from COVID compared to other, compared to other infectious disease risks that people might already be a bit more familiar with that they might have experienced before or thought about before? Yeah, so um, there, you're, you're quite right to say that there are um, a number of infectious diseases in um, uh, among children that, that are important. And there, in fact, there are a number of respiratory viruses. And maybe I'll just mention one, which is the um, respiratory syncytical virus or RSV. Um, my colleagues on the panel here all deal with um, patients being admitted with um, RSV every winter, um, although acknowledging the last couple of winters have been a bit different because of um, all of the restrictions that we've had in our movement. So we've seen less of RSV. Um, but yeah, you know, the previous seasons, 2019 before, around Australia, there's around 6,000 admissions every year with RSV. And that's um, part of our clinical work is looking after those children, um, making sure they're well. Um, and part of um, our lives in Australia are, are children who do become unwell with that particular virus. So I think that's um, perhaps helpful in sort of thinking about, you know, other viruses that cause infections in children. Absolutely. And building on the concept of 
catching COVID and um, coping with it, if you like, which is what we expect perhaps quite a few children to do as we go forward through the journey on the pandemic. We've had a couple of questions about immunity. So that being the idea of natural immunity, if you like, the type of immunity that a child will get from actually contracting COVID as a virus. And this is um, related but separate to the idea of the immunity that you get from a vaccine, which we'll talk a bit more about in a minute. But a specific question that's just come through um, from a parent for Andrew is if there's such a low risk of getting very sick with COVID when when a child catches it, why would we want kids to be protected from the virus? Shouldn't we let them catch it and allow them to build up some immunity? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, um, you know, I think we've been talking about the very mild nature of of COVID um, in children, Um, but we've also been acknowledging that, you know, some children will be admitted to hospital um, and some children, albeit a very small proportion, will require intensive care treatment. And um, I think that if we have a vaccine that can um, prevent that, then we should... Um, be looking at using that vaccine to prevent those infections. For RSV, which I mentioned before, we don't yet have a vaccine. Um, There are some of us who are working towards a vaccine, and that would be terrific to prevent those admissions. Um, So it's the the, the same concept, I think, for COVID, acknowledging that um, the overwhelming majority of children will not become very unwell with the virus. A small group will, and if there's a vaccine that can prevent that, and we know that it's safe and effective, we should pursue that vaccine. Okay, thank you. This leads us on to another question that we're having a lot of comments um, on the feed about now, and that's to do with long COVID. So what we've talked about so far, largely, is the effects of um, a COVID infection on a child in the shorter term. So what might happen when they catch it? Will they get sick at all? A lot of them may not. Um, Or they might get mildly unwell, and then we expect a period of um, that illness to play out and then for them to recover. What we've heard a lot about in the press particularly and especially in relation to adults is the concept of long COVID and this being something that is different from the regular COVID infection. It's a problem that continues on and in some situations for a very long time and can affect a person in a variety of ways that can be really very significant. So the questions that we've got coming through now about long COVID, I'm going to um, put one of these to Shadan first. And I'd just like to read this out because I think it really is captured, the the worry that parents have is captured really um, strongly in this question from Wendy. She says, what about long COVID? I am terrified of this for my child. I keep reading articles, they're reporting findings that it causes kids all kinds of organ damage. These effects could be permanent. Yes, this is a really important question and um, one in which the data is now becoming clearer and uh, I can share some of our experience and what we have seen from overseas. But as you've highlighted, long COVID refers to a situation where a child who has COVID, even if it's mild or even asymptomatic infection, then goes on to have quite prolonged symptoms beyond what we would put down to the acute infection itself. So typically the virus may last, the infection may last only a week, but then long COVID refers to where these these symptoms go on for one, two, even long, long, two or more months. Um, and initially during the pandemic, we were hearing reports that this was a very prominent feature and that many children were having long COVID. I think the picture has become a bit clearer now. 
there are now better studies and evidence to suggest that long COVID is less common in children. Um, the other thing to factor into some of these studies is that there are limitations because we need to have good control groups for these studies where we can actually compare children's experience through a pandemic with those who have had COVID. Because a lot of children who haven't had COVID but are going through all the hard uh, components of COVID like lockdowns and school closures may also experience some of these symptoms. But having said that, one of the largest studies in the UK that's recently come out of school-aged children, of almost 1,800 children who tested positive, who compared these children with 1,800 negative children, did find that COVID prolonged illness or long COVID can occur, but it's infrequent. So they, were, they identified that about 4% of children may have some symptoms after one month, and about 2% may have symptoms after two months. The commonest symptoms they described were headache and fatigue. But interestingly, a proportion of children, a significant proportion in the negative group also had symptoms, and they actually had symptoms for longer than those who tested positive. So that just gives you a sense that there is many factors contributing to the experience of children. Long COVID is real, and I think we really need to work out a better way to diagnose and manage it. And there's certainly, there certainly work that we're involved with to do that at the moment. Fantastic. Thanks, Shadan. So for parents listening, what I understand you're saying is those kids who were in the negative group in the study, so that's the group who didn't get COVID, but obviously they've still lived through the pandemic, many of them had symptoms that were the same as the types of things that some of um, the definitions of long COVID include. So that's when we talk about things like control groups, what we mean, trying to understand are these things only happening in the people who've got the infection and therefore perhaps they're due to the infection or are they also happening in other people too who don't have the infection and that way they might be happening because of a completely different reason. And many of the studies that have happened so far uh, to do with long COVID in children have not been clear enough for us to be able to separate those two things but this recent study in the UK has certainly looked at that and that's been much more reassuring from what I understand than some of the previous studies that didn't allow us to compare things so clearly. Yeah exactly Anthea and just to highlight just going back to the cohort of children the, the kids that we've seen in our clinic we've followed up as I said about 200. It's a small number relatively uh, but we haven't found any long COVID in those kids and we've followed them up to 12 months now. Fantastic. Okay, so it's still a space we're watching and, you know, scientists and healthcare providers watching it as closely as possible. But at this stage, all the new information that's coming is looking more and more reassuring. Not to say this isn't a real thing and something that we, we need to be very mindful of as we go forward. So moving to um, a related sort of question, I guess, you've talked, um, Shadan, and we've heard from everyone today about how COVID behaves differently in kids to the way it, it, it behaves in adults. And the next question um, I might ask you about, Sarah, and that's to do with really why. So what is it about children that means the virus isn't as severe for them? I might get myself the Nobel Prize if I can answer that one. Um, it, it's, I think there's a great um, deal of uncertainty around that and I'm looking to my colleagues if anyone wants to jump in with more information. But um, viruses in general, you know, the, the immune system of children is different to the immune system of adults and they handle different viruses um, and bacteria in different ways to adults. Usually, actually, young children handle them worse. There are a couple of other examples um, 
of infections that can be worse in adults. So, for example, if you get chickenpox as an adult, you're much more likely to be quite unwell with that. There aren't many examples like that, though. So, um, I am not an immunologist. Uh, I'm a paediatrician, but I don't, I don't have that answer for you. So we know that something about their immune system seems to make this different. Um, Maggie, is there anything that you could add to that to help parents understand, I guess, what is happening, recognising that we don't know all the answers? And I can see Shadan's got his hand up too. So, Maggie, if we go to you and then I'll get Shadan to add as well. Yeah, um, this really is Shadan's question to answer because he's done some very elegant research as part of a team at MSRI on it. But right. essentially I agree with Sarah that, you know, children's immune system uh, is different um, and they tend to clear the virus uh, more easily. Their sort of initial or innate immune system works a bit better. Um, and also it's possible that children have seen some coronaviruses circulating in the community before, so have a little bit of pre-existing immunity. Um, but it is the million-dollar question Question, as Sarah said, um, and I'll, I'll throw to Shadan now to just elaborate on some of the work they've been doing in this space. Yeah, thanks, Margie. And I, and I think, as you said, just to follow on from that, there's this component of the immune system, which is the innate immune system, which is the first line of defense. It's a kind of broad first line of defense that kids seem to be able to enact very quickly for this virus. And I'm saying this based on some of the research that's been done at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute by a group of immunologists, which has now been kind of validated overseas um, in the US with similar data. So I think it's starting to give us some clues about this really remarkable difference in children and how they're able to shut down the virus, develop a very robust and fast immune response to it, which is distinguishing them from adults. Great. And in that might be the key to, you know, perhaps treatment and or prevention in the future. So we want to bottle youth for lots of reasons, but, you know, this might be the best one yet. So Shadan, perhaps related to that is a question that's come through from Jane, which says, if kids catch COVID and they develop immunity, can they get it again? Yeah, this is a great question. And, um, I did, before I share my thoughts, I'll just say it's only been a recent infection, obviously. Sometimes we, we haven't seen a number of re-exposures to really answer this in great detail in children. However, what we're seeing in children is that they do develop a reasonable antibody response, actually, after infection. And that antibody response uh, is sustained over time, just like it would be with any other respiratory virus. And, and I'm basing some of these comments on research, again, from uh, immunologists at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Um, but that, that immunity does wane with time. Children, therefore, could get reinfected with COVID. Um, and therefore, I think that points us, again, back to immunization, because the immune, immunity and the protection you get from vaccination is a lot stronger and more protective than that which you get from a natural infection. And I think that's the distinction that we need to make is that, sure, you might get some protection from being reinfected, from past infection, but the immunization is going to be a lot better at protecting you moving forward. Okay. And that brings us really nicely onto the next topic, and that is really for us to focus on immunisation um, and vaccination of our children and also people around our children in the community. So we've got 
Margie, on the panel today, and this is really your area of interest and expertise, Margie. So what I'm going to do now is actually read through a series of rapid-fire questions for Margie because we've just had so many questions about vaccination. And, Margie, if you can just do your best to respond to those as we work (laughs) through them. Um, And then, obviously, all of the panel members could speak to this and may have things to add, so we'll circle back to them at the end um, of this series to sort of get some other views as well. So, Margie, firstly, um, a question from Jackie, and that is, how do we know that this vaccine, and she hasn't specified which one, but a COVID vaccine is going to work in our children? Yeah, so the clinical trial, and when we're talking about the vaccine for children, it's worth just clarifying, we're talking about the mRNA vaccines at the moment. Um, So that's predominantly Pfizer, which has been recommended for the 12 to 15-year-olds, and Moderna for the over-16s, which is also an mRNA vaccine. Um, But the large trial in the United States that was done in this teenage age group was in over about 2,000 children and it was shown to be incredibly effective, nearly 100% against preventing symptomatic infection, which was really um, such an amazing uh, finding really and unexpected that it would be shown to be that effective. So that's what the trials tell us Um, and now obviously with the vaccine introduced into the population, we need to gather more and more data, uh, sort of real world data in terms of prevention and protection against clinical disease disease. Great. So we've got good studies that tell us it's going to stop kids getting sick. We've got a question here now from Sarah that says, um, how contagious are children to their parents and siblings and how will the vaccine change this? So that's really a question around if a child is vaccinated um, with, I assume, what? So obviously two doses are recommended for the Pfizer vaccine. How will that prevent them then once they're vaccinated from uh, transmitting the virus if they get the infection, I think is the question. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of data about that yet in children. We do know that people who have been vaccinated with two doses can still get the infection, but they are less likely to pass it on. Um, And certainly, you know, that is really important. It's not unfortunately 100% in terms of preventing transmission, but it is pretty good. Okay, so the next question is from Isabel and she says Pfizer appears to be safer than other vaccines for children but even still there have been numerous cases of heart inflammation, particularly in boys. I know that this is supposed to resolve within a week but how can a vaccine that causes this actually be safe? Yeah, so the um, side effect, the serious side effect that she's referring to um, is a side effect called myocarditis or inflammation of the heart or it's also associated with pericarditis, which is the inflammation of the lining around the heart. And actually, although there are reports, and these reports also only happened once the vaccine was introduced into the community, they weren't identified in the clinical trial. And that's because it's actually very rare. So it is more common in young uh, teenage boys and young men, particularly those around that 16 to 17-year-old age group. And the risk is estimated in that age group to be about 70 cases per million doses of vaccine or seven cases per 100,000 doses of vaccine. So we're still talking about a very low risk. And, yes, as she said, fortunately, it is a mild um, side effect. 
So just to give you a little bit of clinical sort of information, generally um, these young men tend to get infection about, uh, sorry, get symptoms about five to seven days after the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. And that might be something like a bit of chest pain or a bit of shortness of breath. They may need admission to hospital for one or two days for some anti-inflammatory treatment. Um, but if all of these young men have made a full recovery, um, and I think that's really important. So although it's a serious side effect, it's rare and it is fortunately quite mild. And Margie, just a question I've got that parents might be thinking about out there as well is how does that compare with the chances of having this type of problem, so an inflammation of the heart, if you actually contract COVID, if you get yeah, the virus itself? And that's an excellent point and it's really important to be aware that, of course, myocarditis or inflammation of the heart is much more common from COVID disease itself, at least 10 times greater sort of risk. Um, so it's something that we obviously want to prevent if a teenager, you know, was to get COVID infection. Okay, next question. Can you please, this is from Daniela, can you please explain your thoughts on changed UK government guidelines for 12 to 15-year-olds? So the UK have actually made a recommendation for this teenage age group to only recommend the vaccine for teens with um, underlying medical conditions. So they've taken an at-risk approach, if you like, and those are teenagers who have immunocompromised conditions or may have um, particularly um, intellectual disability or some developmental disabilities. And they have not made a recommendation at the moment for all well teenagers to receive the vaccine. But they have said that they will reconsider that decision and that they will also learn from the experience internationally. Um, but at the moment, I think what that really speaks to is what we you know, started talking about at the start of this session is COVID is actually a mild illness in children and teenagers. So when we're weighing up the vaccine, we're looking at the risk and the benefit. And obviously, you know, the risk of myocarditis and other side effects does need to be taken into account. So I would say, you know, watch this space and, and see if the UK do actually change their recommendation. And I think, Margie, from the way the question was asked here, it sounds like people, and I think there's been some confusion maybe, you can you can clear this up for us, in the media where it it um, sounded a bit like they were saying teenagers, you know, broadly would be recommended for this and then they've changed their mind because of a new concern. But my understanding is that that's not the case. No, the UK have not changed their recommendation. Their initial recommendation was to protect um, teenagers that were at greater risk of COVID, as I said, and they will now consider it in coming months, I think, whether they will expand the program for all well teenagers. Okay. So a related question, in a way, from Nicole. Should children with complex heart conditions get the vaccine given that it has a risk of pericarditis and myocarditis as a side effect? Or should they wait for a different vaccine that doesn't have those side effects? Yeah, and so this, the recommendations obviously for teenagers to have the vaccine has been carefully looked at by ATAGI, which people are now familiar with, the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation. And they've also made their recommendations in really close consultation with the cardiologists or the heart doctors or specialists. And essentially what that, the recommendation that they've made is that um, those teens who may have had um, uh, cardiac inflammation um, from, from another cause that has caused myocarditis 
or maybe they have underlying um, heart failure or, or poorer function of their heart in the last six months. Those teenagers, um, they've said, should, um, you know, there's a precaution around whether they should have the vaccine and that they need to discuss vaccination with their GP or with the, a cardiologist. But having said that, most of our cardiology colleagues say overwhelmingly, even those children they would recommend the vaccination for, but that's a discussion that needs to be had, you know, to understand the underlying um, condition of that child and assess the risk and the benefit. But there are actually very few condi conditions that we would say children should not get vaccinated because we really want to protect them against COVID. Okay. So a question from Janine, and this has been out there a lot, and I know um, I've heard Sarah address this recently as well in interviews, but perhaps to you, Margie, I'd love to know if any long-term effects on fertility in relation to vaccinations for kids have been investigated. This is a really common question and a really important question. And I think what people are really asking is, is it safe in pregnancy? But they're also asking, is it safe if I want to conceive or have a baby? And does it also have an impact on, for example, my menstrual cycle? So I think there's lots of elements to this question. In terms of safety in pregnancy, we already... Um, give, use other vaccines in pregnancy, such as for flu or for whooping cough. And so we've got a lot of experience from, from vaccination in pregnancy, and we know that those vaccines are safe and that they're recommended. When it comes to the COVID vaccines, of course, we don't have as much data of vaccination in pregnancy, but we do have information from a big study that was done in the US with over 35,000 women that showed that, in fact, the women who received the vaccine in pregnancy did not have uh, worse side effects. Um, it didn't mean that they were more likely to miscarry and there weren't any impacts on the baby. So the vaccine is safe for women and for the infants, which is great. There has been another... Um, theory or myth, if you like, that maybe the antibody to the spike protein that is generated from the Pfizer vaccine, that those antibodies might um, affect the placenta and how the placenta attaches and works. And that's actually not true. And then lastly, just with regards to menstrual cycles, um, some people have reported after COVID vaccination that maybe their cycle changed, it was heavier or lighter, and they were concerned about that. But actually, the thinking around that is that really um, many things affect our menstrual cycles, and even the stress of vaccination and the stress of the pandemic um, can affect the cycle, and that's more likely than the vaccine. And just lastly, there's absolutely no evidence that it affects the ability to conceive or fall pregnant. So I've spent a bit more time on that one because it's really important and I know people are concerned about it but at the moment we have absolutely no evidence that the vaccine particularly the Pfizer vaccine recommended for pregnant women here in Australia has any impact on fertility. Thanks Margie and I know that that question comes up a lot even in you know, recent weeks I think I haven't had a clinic where one parent hasn't asked that particular question so uh, that's understandable I think for parents totally. watching you know the last thing that you want to do as a parent is make a decision that might have a, a problematic impact on something as huge as your child's fertility so it's a it's completely reasonable that people are thinking about these sorts of things there is a lot of information out there a lot of it is misinformation it may not be well informed and that might fuel some of your worry without actually addressing the facts so I would really encourage people to 
have a conversation with a trusted healthcare provider. Obviously, we've heard lots of things just now from Margie. Unfortunately, we can't all have Margie in our living room or on the on you know the other end of the phone or any of the people here joining us today who could equally um, speak to those concerns. But what you can do is contact your GP, make a time to sit down and have a conversation. You don't have to make your decision then and there. It might take you a while. You might need to talk about this a few times. You might want to go back and watch this video again and have another listen to some of the things that were talked about to help you reach that place where you can feel confident um, that you're making the right choice for your child. But really, as healthcare providers, we feel very comfortable um, in making that recommendation that this is not going to be uh, an issue for your child's fertility by having the vaccination. So I think we've almost worn you out, Margie. I, I just have one more that I want to put to you and then we'll go more broadly to the panel with a few other questions. So this one's from Catherine. Can you please explain the meaning of mRNA and how it works in the immune system and what this has to do with vaccines? Yeah, thanks, Catherine. That's a really great question. So the mRNA vaccines stand for messenger RNA. And I think a lot of people have been a bit frightened that this was a new kind of vaccine platform and therefore is it somehow more unsafe? But in fact, there's over 30 years of work um, surrounding these mRNA vaccines from the early 90s. And very quickly, I'll explain how they work. Essentially, there's a little piece of genetic code, which is the mRNA, which is um, encased or inside a little fat bubble, which is called a lipid nanoparticle. And it's that that is actually injected into the muscle and it moves into the cell, into the area in the cell around the nucleus. So it doesn't go anywhere near the nucleus. It can't affect somebody's DNA. And actually, the cell reads that bit of genetic code once the fat bubble dissolves and um, makes the spike protein and then the body makes an immune response or antibodies to that spike protein. So it's really incredibly clever technology. Um, the cell then actually um, destroys the little piece of genetic code or mRNA so it doesn't hang around. Um, and then you've got those antibodies in the immune system circulating, ready to go should you meet the infection. So a long explanation but another really common question and people quite apprehensive about mRNA vaccines and really um, they have been shown to be incredibly effective and safe so far. Great. So perhaps I'll put this next question to Sarah um, to give Margie a bit of a breather, and I know anyone could answer it, but I think it's a really important question from Liz, and it maybe captures how a lot of parents might be feeling. I'm hearing that, um, you know, Delta's not that serious, my child's not likely to get very sick, but then in the next breath you're telling me I need to get my child vaccinated, this is something that I have to do. So I feel confused, Liz is saying, what is actually the safest thing for my child? It is a great question. We're essentially weighing up an illness that has a very low risk of complications with an immunisation that has an even lower rate of complications. So on balance, again, the vast majority of children will do very well with COVID. They do play a role in the transmission of COVID, which is another factor to weigh up. Um, but overall, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very mild illness. But in rare cases, it can cause significant illness, very rare cases. We want to lower that as much as possible in the same way that we want to lower the risk of the flu and we advise vaccination against the flu. 
I do want to, um, while I've got the floor, take the opportunity to do a bit of a plea to parents about vaccinations of everyone who's eligible in the household. One thing that we have seen, there was a question to Margie earlier about the transmission within the household if family members are vaccinated. With Delta, if family members are not vaccinated, we're seeing almost universal transmission within a household. So in other words, if someone gets COVID in the house, we're seeing in many cases, the whole house becoming sick. And one thing that we have been seeing that's very real and really concerning to us as paediatricians is children being admitted to hospital. They have COVID, but they're not particularly sick with COVID, but their parents are so sick or the people who care for them are so sick that they're in hospital and there's no one to look after the child. There've been over a hundred children admitted in Sydney um, because of that and dozens in Victoria not all to the children's hospital, but to other hospitals. So please, you know, if you could take one message away from this session, it's to vaccinate every eligible member of the household. I think, Sarah, that leads us really nicely onto the concept of protecting younger children, which is really a big part of what you're talking about there. So there are lots of ways we need to protect younger children. One of them is by staying well ourselves. The biggest thing we can do to look after our kids is to stay healthy so that we can be there and care for them. And in choosing vaccination for ourselves, um, that is a huge and important step in doing that because it avoids that very situation that you're talking about where we have seen children who are not terribly unwell themselves with COVID but have very sick parents and that is an incredibly distressing um, situation that I I know no parent um, would want to be imagining happening to them and their child and their family. When it comes to younger children we've had lots of questions um, through on the feed about what about my child who's too young to be vaccinated? Uh, How do I protect them? There are questions about whether they should keep them home to protect them which is one of the things we've talked a little bit about today. So I'd like to um, go to Shadan and ask you, Shadan, if you were addressing this with parents, so for example, we've got a question here from Jen. What do we do if the kids are to be sent back to school or kindergarten and they're too young to be vaccinated? I'm worried about what we can be doing to protect them best. Yes, thank you for this question. I think it's at the forefront of all of our minds with who have, you know families who have young kids. They potentially will be able to go back to school unvaccinated. There's a couple of considerations here, and I think as Sarah and Margie have highlighted, um, vaccination of the eligible members in households, even in schools, all the caregivers, uh, grandparents will have a big role to play in, in our approach to this. It's also important to consider, obviously, as we've said, that the illness is relatively mild in most cases of children, for children. And I think we also need to factor in not just the disease impacts, but the indirect impacts of this infection on children. And what I mean by that is COVID disease obviously impacts the child by making them feel unwell, but the indirect impacts of not going to school or remote learning, um, the well-being impacts as a result of lockdown, all these things are also quite significant. And in fact, in some ways for younger children, more significant than the disease itself. And so I think we need to consider all of these elements uh, when we think about sending kids back to school. Absolutely. Thanks, Shadana. Margie's got something to add there. I just wanted to quickly add that we will see, you know, that it's going to be recommended for primary school aged 
children to wear masks if they're able. So that's sort of children over the age of five to 12. We know that secondary school kids are asked. But also just to remind parents how important it is that we still are doing the simple things, that children are washing their hands, if they have symptoms, that they get tested. And as Sarah said earlier, you know, with little kids, you are able to cocoon them a little bit. You are able to ask, especially if you're concerned about their um, health and they may have some other conditions, to ask the people around them, you know, to be vaccinated and to be well before they visit the house and not visit with symptoms, for example. So I think there are those other sort of simple things that we can't forget. So important, Margie. And we've only got a couple of minutes now until we finish up, but I think that's a really good reminder that vaccination is obviously possibly, likely very much the most important or powerful tool we have here to actually combat COVID as a community, but it's not the only tool. And there are lots of things we've already been doing and been doing really well for actually a long time now. We're tired, we're exhausted from doing these things, but they have made a big difference and they've actually kept all of us and our children largely very safe. So a lot of those things will continue to be part of this picture as we go forward. But, you know, fortunately, we're in a situation where we've got some added ammunition now and you know very effective and safe vaccines that we can add to the mix and I think for parents watching we've heard a huge amount today and I'm sure there's a lot to process and and digest and you may even feel you want to come back and watch this again but I'd like to acknowledge just how challenging it is for people to make decisions on behalf of their children in some ways we look at you know what we're looking to is a safer place if you like across a river and we've kind of somehow got to get across this really complicated bridge and as parents we can choose how we and when we make that journey across that bridge what we see is safe what we see as the risks and when we're prepared to look at what's on this side and what we're worried about and decide okay I want to get over there and that largely will be through something like getting vaccinated but for our children, particularly young children, they can't make that choice for themselves to make that journey. It, they rely on us to actually carry them over there, either by helping to make a decision for our child who might be eligible to be vaccinated, or perhaps by doing other things that we can do to bring them to a safer place. But as parents, that's a huge responsibility, but it's also um, an amazing opportunity that we do have and we all action every day to think about the things that we're doing to actually help our kids get through to the other side of all of this in, in a safer way as possible. The community has done an amazing job and I want to encourage everyone to keep going because making those sorts of decisions and thinking about those things every day are exhausting. If you're at home and you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling stressed, you're feeling worried, then know that that's really quite okay and normal given everything that you're going through. But at the same time, please reach out for help and support if you need it because you don't need to be doing this on your own. Uncertainty is a really, really difficult thing to sit with and we've been asked to all do that for a long period of time now in a way that we've never had to do before and it's exhausting. Finding information to reduce the unknowns is one of the best ways that you can reduce that uncertainty and help yourself feel more reassured and confident about decisions that you're making. 
It's not easy to do that. There's a lot of information out there that might actually make things more confusing or harder for you to process. So by bringing some of this information to you today from experts like those that we've heard from, I'd like to hope that we can help you to have trustworthy information to make your decisions a bit easier. It's also important to know that things are changing all the time and you might change your mind about things. You might need to think again and reconsider your choices. And that doesn't mean that you were wrong or that you didn't pay enough attention in the first place. It just means that you're careful and you want to do the best for your child. And that's likely to be the way things are going to be for the months, hopefully not much longer than months, but for quite a period ahead as we all continue on this journey, gathering information, understanding what's really happening and making the safest choices that we can for our kids and our families. Thanks for listening today. See you again soon.